1: Countries have had a hard time keeping anything secret lately. Can they do a better job keeping their promises? I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One, and today we're talking about promises made in Paris at the International Climate Summit. Last year, leaders from 195 countries joined a pledge to go on a carbon diet. Countries laid out voluntary plans for growing their economies while cutting carbon pollution. Now comes the hard work and sweat. On the show today, I'll ask Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz how the United States, China, and other big economies are going to start running cleaner. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. The second half of the program, I'll talk with investors and entrepreneurs about clean energy technologies, investing, and what individuals can do to lead a greener life. We begin with Ernest Moniz, who was a longtime professor of physics and engineering at MIT before joining President Obama's cabinet in 2013. He played a key role in negotiating the Iranian nuclear deal and the Paris Climate Agreement. Please welcome Secretary Moniz to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Secretary Moniz, welcome back. Uh, I'd like to begin, you know, obviously the Paris Climate Agreement was a big deal, 195 countries coming together, but the New York Times recently ran a lead story saying that the current low cost of fossil fuels and turmoil uh, and concern about an economic um, downturn is presenting a challenge for the Paris Agreement, and they quoted Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, saying, quote, this will be a litmus test for the government's whether or not they are serious about what they have done in Paris. So how is the U.S. going to make good on the Paris deal, and is the current low cost of fossil fuels kind of wind in the face?
3: Well, certainly the low cost of oil uh, affects uh, certain parts of the sector. I mean, it's put a dent into some of the electric vehicle uh, sales. It uh, provides a um, higher challenge, if you like, for next-generation biofuels. But on the other hand, I have to say I feel pretty confident that, uh, that we will be able to, uh, to move forward uh, pretty, pretty aggressively. Let me make a few points. Uh, first of all, we should remember that uh, certainly in the United States, uh, oil has essentially no role in the power sector, uh, and there we are continuing to see uh, the very, very strong growth uh, of wind and solar uh, and other uh, other renewables, I think that will that will certainly uh, certainly continue, uh, particularly as we continue to drive down the costs very very dramatically in these areas. Uh, if we go to transportation, obviously that's where oil uh, has a has a uh, uh, the dominant role. Uh, but let let me point out that we continue uh, to push hard in three directions. Uh, one is the continued electrification. Of, uh, of, of, uh, of vehicles, and we are now over 400,000 uh, electric vehicles uh, on the road uh, in this country, uh, California uh, probably uh, leading, leading the way. Uh, secondly, we continue to uh, develop uh, advanced biofuels, and certainly the requirements for at least a minimal biofuel uh, component uh, are not going away. Obviously, we'd like to see uh, movement towards the more advanced biofuels. But third, uh, we will continue to push uh, in terms of uh, efficiency of vehicles. And something like the CAFE standards, uh, which have us reaching uh, well over 50 miles per gallon uh, for new light-duty vehicles in 2025, those do not depend upon the oil price. Uh, those are there. Uh, we, we are now uh, at a, actual fleet average uh, of about 25 miles per gallon uh, and uh, heading up, as I said, to new vehicle 50-plus miles per gallon uh, in, uh, in in 2025. So uh, I think we will keep making this, this progress. Uh, and as we see exciting technology developments, you probably have seen the recent administration commitment to self-driving vehicles. That's that is coming at us so much faster than anybody expected. Uh, and when you think about that, it's a pathway, again, to further electrification uh, and to offering all kinds of new services to people. So I think it's, it's, it's very exciting. Uh, oil prices go up and down, uh, uh, and uh, that will continue to, continue to be the case. We have a longer-term perspective in terms of the technology and the policies uh, to continue on our, on our decarbonization path. Americans
1: love technology, but a lot of times technology has unintended consequences. Self-driving cars, for example, some experts are concerned that if you're not driving the car, you don't care if it's stuck in traffic for two hours, so there could be more cars circulating around if I don't have to be worried about stuck in gridlock. So they could result in more carbon emissions than less.
3: Uh, well, first of all, if it's a purely electric vehicle being supplied by, by renewable sources, uh, I wouldn't worry about the emissions so much. But look, I don't think people are going to be happy to be sitting in one spot for a long time. Uh, the, uh, no, but there, their car is be, without them in it. Look, That's there the will be system challenges to be, to be met, system design. There will be urban redesign that will naturally flow from this. So, you know, if you go back 10 years and look at the energy world, it looks very very different from from today in so many ways uh in in the power sector in the uh, uh in the uh, with, with with renewables uh, obviously in terms of our oil and gas production it's uh, it's it's night and day um, i think ten years from now uh, we will it's like, we have a hard enough time understanding what it was like ten years ago. We have a lot harder time understanding what's going to be like ten years from now. Uh, and we're going to push on technology. And in fact, one of the themes that I'd like to I'd like to really get to today uh, is in Paris. There there is a lot of focus, uh, deservedly so, on the commitments that were made by essentially every country in the world uh, to uh, to uh, lowering uh, lowering carbon emissions. But I'd like to also point and please come back to uh, the very beginning of the meeting in Paris. A commitment to innovation, technology innovation as central to meeting our goals was also there. And that is absolutely critical because as we go down one decade, two decades, three decades, our ambition is going to have to get even greater. And that's going to be enabled by the technology innovation that continues to drive down costs and continues to provide us surprises in terms of new kinds of services that we can offer people. Well, one of the ambitious goals that's out there, a couple of uh, presidential
1: candidates have endorsed 100% renewable energy for the United States. Is that possible with existing technology, or do you think new innovations are required to get the United States to 100% renewable?
3: Look, we are seeing dramatic cost reductions. In, uh, if we look just in the last six years, let's say, uh, we have seen cost reductions of 40, 50, 60, 40, 50, 70, and 90%, I believe it is, respectively, for onshore wind, uh, for, uh, uh, for, for, for PV, for uh, batteries, uh, for LEDs, uh, LEDs is an incredible story in terms of the cost reduction uh, and the associated deployment. And by the way, something I'd like to come back to as well called the Clean Energy Ministerial that we will be hosting here in San Francisco uh, in, uh, uh, in June, um, uh, it, has, uh, it has led the way in terms of getting uh, worldwide Deployment of LEDs at huge scale india is a, is, a, is an incredible story so uh, so look there 's a lot a lot here to be to feel to feel really good about, uh, but nevertheless uh, we still want those breakthrough technology innovations uh, that uh, 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 that can be game changers. Uh, sunlight to fuels would be, would be an example of, uh, of one that does not violate the laws of physics, but we have a long way to go yet. Uh, it, could be, it could just be you know, tremendous, tremendous game changers uh, in front of us. So uh, I think with Paris, we saw the countries of the world essentially all acknowledging the critical importance of addressing climate change. Uh, we saw a set of national commitments to get there. I believe we will see uh, countries, by and large, aggressively uh, working to meet those targets. Certainly, in the United States. Uh, we believe that we are we are certainly on track. Um, uh, clearly, we'd love to see additional policy innovation as well uh, in working with Congress. But we are on track, uh, and uh, and I will continue to insist that that innovation uh, will be a big part of the story.
1: In any particular sectors, is it battery storage? You mentioned sunlight to fuels. I think you mean transportation
3: fuels. Correct.
1: uh, Lighting, buildings. Where would you like to see new investors, new innovation happen?
3: Uh, All of the above. Uh, We we need it across the board. Uh, If we are going to go to a world where carbon emissions and economic growth... uh, Uh, are not proportional, Uh, we're going to need very, very strong demand-side progress, so efficiency, LEDs, uh, buildings, uh, uh, you name it. Uh, We're going to need a lot of fuel switching, shall I say, where I'm using fuel here generally, uh, including, including renewables. Uh, We're seeing today the the shift uh, from uh, coal to gas, uh, natural gas, as a a big part of our carbon reductions, uh, for example. Um, uh, And we will have, I believe, uh, a contribution uh, not only from the zero-carbon technologies, uh, but also uh, carbon dioxide capture uh, will will play a role. Um, uh, And I would note that with carbon capture... You know, we have a lot of attention, uh, and I don't want to take attention away from the issue of capturing carbon from coal plants, et cetera. But we have a lot of industrial facilities that emit a lot of carbon dioxide for which there, there is, in some sense, no practical alternative other than carbon capture, uh, perhaps utilizing the carbon dioxide. So it's, it's got to be across the board, and it's got to be in the power sector, in the industrial sector, uh, in the transportation sector.
1: You've mentioned falling prices in wind, solar, fossil fuel prices uh, also have fallen. One area where prices have not fallen is nuclear. Prices have risen. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation there. Once, a few years ago, there was a talk of a nuclear renaissance in the United States. A few new plants were started. Some old ones have been retired. Where are you on nuclear now as part of this Paris uh, pledge?
3: Well, well look, we, we still think that that uh, that nuclear is is one of the options uh, that will play an important role in some places and, and not so important a role in, in other places uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of it is uh, societal uh, decisions. Uh, Germany is an obvious, uh, an obvious example. Um, uh, part of it can be regulatory structures. Uh, for example, in the United States, it's not an accident that the new plants are being built in the southeast uh, where the cost recovery is, is, uh, uh, is, 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 is available we're seeing in China a tremendous build-out of of nuclear power as part of their their zero carbon. But looking ahead, uh, uh, I will just go back to the innovation theme. Um, uh, One very, in my view, very promising direction are what's called small modular reactors, where rather than building uh, increasingly large nuclear plants, uh, sometimes 1,400 megawatts, uh, and requiring, you know, $15 billion of capital for, uh, for two units, uh, instead going towards much smaller units, uh, we are supporting at the Department of Energy one that will be heading towards NRC license applications this year for a 50-megawatt unit, uh, very good safety features, et cetera. Uh, what we don't know and won't know until it plays out is what is going to be the, f- the full cost uh, where the efficiencies of manufacturing can be brought to bear, but will that overcome the efficiencies of scale? So these are open questions, but that's why we are investing in an R&D portfolio uh, and, uh, and moving forward. Uh, we're talking today
1: at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to go to a, a lightning round. We have a brief number of... Uh, yes or no uh, questions for Secretary Moniz. Uh, the first one...
3: I don't do yes or no
1: very well. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> too many years as a professor. Right? <laughs> Wired for 50 minutes. Right. Um, the um, first one is, coal is a dying industry in the United States. Yes or no?
3: <laughs> Sorry, but as a... Uh, look, obviously the coal share of... <laughs> Electricity production has dropped substantially. Uh, in fact, in the last year, for five months, uh, natural gas for the first time uh, supplied more electricity than coal. Uh, that's where something like uh, carbon capture and sequestration uh, comes in uh, to have a continuing role for coal in a low carbon world. A young child today
1: will fly on a battery powered airplane in their lifetime. How far? <laughs> and, and, and survive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> next question. Your 1970s haircut gave you style points when negotiating deals in Paris and Tehran. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> uh, Sarah Palin has said she would like to be energy secretary under Donald Trump if he becomes president. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I hope uh, she will focus on the nuclear stockpile as well. Um, uh, But I believe she also added that she would like to provide more access to federal lands. Uh, It's not one of our responsibilities.
1: (laughs) You mentioned the uh, you're hosting the group of energy ministers from around the world in San Francisco later this year. Uh, would you have really wanted to host them in Las Vegas, but the carbon footprint of the Las Vegas Strip was just too large? <laughs> uh,
3: no, we wanted to host them in San Francisco. And uh, let me make, actually, a, a very serious point. The, uh, the Clean Energy Ministerial is composed of uh, 23 countries plus the EU. Uh, and um, we believe now, post-Paris, the Clean Energy Ministerial can be, can be a premier organization for um, seeing seeing to the Paris implementation, uh, and uh, so, in the, in the last year of this of this administration of the Obama administration, uh, we really uh, uh, see this opportunity uh, again to to link those uh, those agendas uh, very strongly. We wanted to come to San Francisco uh, to emphasize the innovation theme, uh, and uh, it will be here on June first and second. Uh, it'll be preceded uh, by Uh, what uh, promises to be a fabulous Clean Energy Innovation Showcase, uh, I believe in Union Square, (laughs) by the way, uh, with up to 1,000 innovative technologies on display uh, from the Bay Area, from the United States, and from other countries in the Clean Energy Ministerial. Uh, So this is going to be, I think, a very important event to, again, capture momentum out of Paris uh, and to... Uh, really solidify the innovation theme as core to the future in in satisfying the commitments made there.
1: And that program, that uh, event here in early June in in San Francisco, I'd like to play a clip of uh, former Secretary of Treasury Hank Paulson, who was here recently talking about climate and then get your reaction. This is Hank Paulson, former CEO of Goldman Sachs and Treasury Secretary under the second President Bush. Well, climate change, I think, is a very difficult issue to deal with. It is, you know, I think the biggest risk not just to the global ecosystem and the environment, it's the biggest economic
4: risk we face.
1: So that's a prominent Republican saying climate is a big risk. Where can Republicans and Democrats agree on climate? They there was a deal at the budget deal at the end of last year to allow crude oil exports and extend some renewable energy credits that Democrats and Republicans agreed on that. Where else can Republicans and Democrats agree on climate? Uh,
3: I believe the innovation agenda uh, is really the really the key Uh, we have uh, in again in Paris, as I mentioned earlier, on the very first day, President Obama and the leaders of 19 other countries, uh, mostly the leaders, uh, leaders are, are very high-ranking members of the government, announced this Mission Innovation uh, uh, Initiative. Uh, the, uh, we have had extensive discussions uh, about this in the Congress with both chambers, both, uh, both parties, uh, and the innovation agenda is one that resonates very, very strongly. Uh, it's, it's about also... It's advancing business uh, in addition to advancing our climate goals, our security goals, our economic goals. Uh, It's also going to be about building new infrastructure. Uh, Labor is all into the innovation and infrastructure agenda. Uh, So I think the, uh, look, the reality is in Paris, certainly no one can dispute the fact that every country in the world basically came forward and said we have to address this. Now there may be individuals who would like to take a different position but i have not heard any of them take a different position on innovation on the fact that the united states has always led in innovation that it gives us tremendous opportunity uh, uh, economically uh, and i think that's the key Um, so this year um, uh, frankly in the next months we are going to see uh, as the Congress uh, starts debating an energy bill, uh, as the Congress addresses the appropriations, I can assure you that the uh, administration is committed to its mission innovation commitment of doubling energy technology R&D over the next five years. That translates into a 15 to 20% per year, whether you compound or not, uh, uh, increase. Um, we have every intention of certainly trying to work with the Congress to, to establish that, as will the other 19 countries that have, that have joined with, it, with us. And I might add that, uh, and perhaps the next panel will address this, that this mission coalition, mission innovation coalition of 20 countries, expanding the innovation pipeline, it has been done in collaboration with what's called the Breakthrough Energy Coalition which is 28 investors from 10 different countries putting billions of dollars on the table with increased risk tolerance and patience for returns to get some of these breakthrough energy uh, projects going forward, to, to, to really move from end to end in terms of getting these technologies into the, in, uh, into the marketplace. From from early early innovation to to uh, to, uh, to deployment, so this is tremendous leverage on both public and private sectors. We're getting 20 countries to double R- to technology R and D to provide more investable opportunities for, frankly, deep-pocketed investors. Again, from many many countries and many continents. So, um, so I think this is this is this is the message. This is the bipartisan message. Uh, This is the message that will, again, I think, carry us across the finish line in terms of the dramatically increased ambition we will need uh, in the decades ahead. Do you believe that this innovation
1: will allow this transition to happen without lifestyle changes and without increased costs to consumers?
3: I think uh, net net it will be de- yes decrease cost to consumers uh, particularly in light of the alternatives as I think Hank Paulson was uh, was uh, was intimating as far as lifestyle choices yeah I can imagine there will be lifestyle lifestyle I mean changes better lifestyles uh, again uh, I would just note who knows but we can dream uh, we talk about autonomous vehicles. But if you play that out, if that becomes a a dramatically deployed technology, especially in urban environments, it's going to suggest a different urban environment. A better one, a cleaner one, a quieter one with new services. So, you know, I think we are always very limited in our ability to, to predict, again, 10 years ago, not, not many people would have predicted where we are today uh, in terms of energy and the associated implications of energy for our, for our everyday lives. Uh, it's only going to be, I think, even more surprising when we uh, look back from 10 and 20 years down the road.
1: Our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite you to uh, join us with a quick question for the secretary, and then we'll go on to our our second piece. I, I'm a 30-year EPA employee, and uh, when I started in 1984, we were talking about what are we were going to do with
4: the, uh, the waste from nuclear power generation, and uh, that's something that we're going to have to get on top of sometime. It's going to be an integrated process, there's no such thing as totally clean energy because we have to deal with, with that waste. So I'm hoping that there's a plan in place.
3: So the, uh, let me just say, that actually, um, uh, just last week, uh, we had the first of a set of uh, public hearings, uh, public meetings uh, to uh, request information. Uh, I won't go into great detail, but what is called a consent-based process to all forms of uh, nuclear spent fuel and high-level waste handling. Uh, storage facilities, uh, geological repositories, deep boreholes, uh, which we are starting an experiment on. Uh, so we we are we are launching kind of a new uh, a new push uh, towards uh, all forms of managing the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle. Let's have our next question for Secretary Moniz. Dave Masson, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, thank you, Secretary Morniz for your
4: efforts in Paris. I understand that pricing carbon was not on the agenda there, but it was a part of important side discussions. What's your view of uh, the role that pricing carbon, say, a tax on fossil fuels, could play? And do you have hopes about a role for Congress in bringing that to the U.S.?
3: Well, I certainly feel that uh, that pricing carbon uh, is, uh, is the simplest economy-wide approach uh, to, uh, to addressing uh, carbon. Uh, and uh, personally, I think that we will eventually uh, get there. Um, I think it's clear in the current political environment that we're not ready to get there uh, uh, immediately. Uh, but the administration, the, the president's climate action plan, uh, is, uh, is really addressing and accomplishing significant reductions through existing administrative authorities. Uh, the issue there is that, in doing so, we therefore need to ad- address it in some sense in a se- in a sectoral way, like the Clean Power Plan for power plants, uh, the CAFE standards for vehicle efficiencies, uh, etc. Uh, ultimately, uh, a carbon price uh, would probably be the most simplest wa- the simplest way to get economy wide and to I think to give the most certainty. Uh, to industry and everyone else in terms of understanding uh, the, the, the future.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask the lady in the back. You jump forward because we've had a bunch of, bunch of men on stage today and a bunch of men at the microphone, so, uh, uh, and also some generation. This is the last question. Uh, welcome to Climate One. Thank
0: you. Hi, Lily Pike from Energy Innovation. Saw today that China announced a price floor for oil. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and if the U.S. would ever consider such a policy.
3: Well, the 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 Chinese, I think, are like others uh, taking advantage of the low the low oil prices to uh, in some cases, by the way, and I'm not saying about China specifically, but uh, in many cases, uh, countries that have been providing enormous subsidies uh, are using the low oil price as a chance to lower the subsidies uh, without having as big an impact on their on their consumers. Uh, but I think, look, I think the issue in the end is that uh, we have to keep uh, our focus, as we are in the United States, by the way, uh, in terms of lowering our oil dependence. Even as we are producing more oil, you know, we are still big net oil, imp- uh, big crude oil importers. Uh, and so we will continue uh, to address lowering oil dependence, again, through three principal thrusts. Efficiency, alternative liquid fuels, electrification of vehicles. That's that's our program.
1: We have to end our first segment there. Our thanks to U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz for his comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club.
2: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. As Secretary Moniz points out, meeting our nation's climate goals depends on bipartisan support. And sometimes private companies can help grease the wheels. In 2012, eBay successfully lobbied to change a Utah law that restricted access to clean energy. eBay's Lori Duvall tells us how they convinced a red state to go green. And in this case, we actually were partnered with with utilities, with a Republican state senator, with some other local businesses to actually make the case um, and and get in front of the legislature and show them that it actually, not from a going to help the climate perspective, but from a true jobs, attracting new companies, having a healthier um, business environment in Utah, we were able to get the law changed. And now you can buy clean power, not just us, but anybody in Utah, including residents. So, you know, it really shows you have to stay flexible in these conversations. Um, No matter what your personal motivation is, you have to understand who you're talking to and be able to make the case, whether it's taking the business case to the CFO or taking the kind of broader societal business impact story to a red state legislator. There are a lot of good reasons to make these changes. It's not just because it's the right thing to do for the climate. That's a great reason, but it's not always the reason that motivates everybody. That's Laurie Duvall, Global Director of Green at eBay, speaking at Climate One in 2015. Now back for the second half of our program from the Commonwealth Club.
1: The Paris climate deal was backed by hundreds of corporations, including Apple, General Electric, IBM, and other icons of American industry. Bill Gates went to Paris to announce he is partnering with Richard Branson, Mark Zuckerberg, and other billionaires to create a new fund to invest in breakthrough technologies. We turn now to other companies and investors active on the clean energy front. Hal Harvey is CEO of Energy Innovation, a consulting group. He is formerly an executive with several philanthropic foundations. Danny Kennedy is managing director at CalCEF, the California Clean Energy Fund, a private equity and venture capital firm. He previously co-founded a solar rooftop company. Lyndon Rive is co-founder and CEO of Solar City, one of the country's largest installers of rooftop solar systems. Entrepreneur Elon Musk is chair of the Solar City board and Lyndon Rives' cousin. Please welcome them to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Hal Harvey, let's begin with you. You've said that there are two Americas—not a red America and a blue America, but a green America and a brown America. Tell us what you mean.
4: <laughs> so, uh, with with deference, of course, to Energy Secretary Moniz. A very large fraction of American energy policy is set state by state. 60% of the nation's carbon goes through monopoly pipes and wires. And those are regulated individually by state public utilities commissions. Those public utilities commissioners get to decide whether your utility bill lands on green choices or brown choices. And in states like California, which has near one third renewable energy and will soon have 50% renewable energy, they're landing on green choices. But there are other states. Nevada recently made a horrible reversal, uh, and they're insisting, in effect, that your money go to Brown Choices. So this is substantially driven state by state.
1: Lyndon Rive, there is uh, some areas where clean energy is playing defense. Nevada's one. uh, In Georgia, the state recently reduced uh, incentives for electric vehicles. Sales plummeted. So tell us about where you're playing offense and where you're playing defense.
5: Uh, Right now, it just feels like we... Playing defense left and right. Um, the, the, the amount of attacks coming on to the uh, solar industry is insane. Um, you know, just coming back from, from Paris, you know, one of the big takeaways is the countries are investing now to, to make this change. Um, but the only way you can truly make this change is you have to give the choice to, to the public. You have to enable the technology for the public to be actually use it. But if the monopoly is pre- uh, protecting their, their infrastructure and, and not allowing that change to occur it's really difficult to, to make that happen. And Nevada is a classic case. Um, the industry has done a great job of moving forward, reducing cost, making it more affordable, allowing more and more uh, lower-income neighborhoods to, to go solar. Um, but then with one swipe of, of the pan, the PUC decimated uh, the solar industry in Nevada. There is no solar industry. It's, it's gone. So It's not like reduced. It's gone. And uh, it's a shame, especially when, when it's a state where most of the energy is imported... And most of it's coal and natural gas.
1: And, and how did that happen? Is it because the incumbent utilities have more influence at the state house? They have more muscle? How, how did that battle play out in Nevada, it, the very so regional so so state?
5: So, unless you have um, a, a legislation or a PC that wants to go and, and stands the importance of, of selecting green over, over brown, um, the incumbent infrastructure. The relationships they have and the investments they've made into uh, policy has has been going on for 100 years. And so so that relationship is highly captive and has been going on. And uh, for a long time, they've made these investments. And so unless you can get the public to weigh in, you're going to end up with roughly the same result. And the result is protecting their profits.
1: Danny Kennedy, there is some uh, upside here. Job growth, solar jobs are growing, solar deployment is growing. Tell us, tell us the, the positive side of the story.
0: Well, the truth is we've been succeeding as a clean energy industry now for over a decade, particularly in job creation, which should be important to all of us coming out of the recession. Solar, for example, created a couple hundred thousand jobs. So that there are now more people employed in the solar industry, than in the oil and gas extraction industry in America. There are now more solar installers, just that occupation, half of the value chain, if you will, than there are coal miners in America. And that's at less than 2% of electricity supplied. So as we grow to 10, 20, 50 in California, where we're under mandate to do so, we will employ many hundreds of thousands more Americans as these clean energy businesses grow. So great news story there. Plus, we're lowering costs of electricity for families and businesses across the country. Plus, we're cleaning the air and reducing the risks of climate change that we talked about. So, a lot of good news, and that's a global story as well. I mean, what, what happened before Paris was that the previous three years, capital flows had been more on the side of clean energy than dirty. You know, so history has shifted, and the alternative energy, if you will, is no longer wind and solar, it's nukes and coal, actually, as a matter of where new capacity is being built. and that will only grow globally. And post-Paris, that number will expand by at least half again because of the commitments made by the the diplomats there.
1: Lyndon Rive, the United States, except for Alaska and Hawaii, doesn't really burn oil for electricity, but there's been a lot of turmoil in the energy markets recently, creating question about renewable energy. How's that affecting your business? How's that affecting the outlook for renewable energy, all this concern and turmoil in the energy sector?
5: You know, the um, electricity is not driven by, well, at least not in the U.S., as as you mentioned, uh, Hawaii, small impact. Um, But most of the cost is actually in transmission and distribution. So even with the cost of natural gas coming down um, and the the utility's variable cost has essentially dropped in half, uh, retail rates continue to increase. And uh, when you have a business model where you get a, a regulated return on your cost, your motivation is to spend more money on the infrastructure and so the only way we're going to truly really change this and also reduce the friction between alternative energy and, and the, the incumbent is you've got to change the revenue model. You, you can't be revenue of cost. It, it can be uh, revenue of services, or it can be infrastructure as a service and enable competition into the market. As the Secretary mentioned earlier, um, if, if you're going to uh, really try to change this, you have to focus on technology. The number one driving factor for technology and technology innovation is competition. If you don't bring competition into the equation, what type of products would we have? If there was only one cell phone, how good would it be? Yes, it would make a call, but it would be, wouldn't be a great phone. If there was only one car, it wouldn't be that great a car. Competition drives innovation. And so you have to open up this, this monopoly infrastructure, allow competition to build the the infrastructure out. With that, innovation will occur. So that's what has to happen. Is Let's not depend on one company to build out the infrastructure. Let's allow a 1,000 companies to build out that infrastructure and then have one company be the manager of it. That's fine. But if you do that, then uh, innovation will occur.
1: Al Howery, that's starting to happen in, in California. There are places where people can make choices, uh, various flavors, various colors of green. Is that happening across the United States where people can choose where they get their le- electrons from?
4: There are a number of electricity markets that have opened up to customer choice in different ways. Uh, And one interesting example, actually, is Texas. So the first renewable portfolio standard in the country was signed by Governor George W. Bush. Uh, They met that with wind in no time whatsoever. They doubled it and they beat the records on that. Texas now has more than twice as much wind as California. It was initiated by policy it was enabled by Texas's willingness to put in transmission lines to the wind field. So that was a certainty that a wind developer could look at and use right away. And finally, it was enabled by the possibility of bilateral sales so the wind companies could sell directly to the customers. And many customers preferred this. Some preferred it for environmental reasons, but many preferred it because the long term price of wind is exactly the same as the short term price of wind once the windmill is built. Zero fuel cost. That's an incredible advantage. So there are many ways to get at this. But fundamentally, public policy is an enabler or inhibitor. And the difference uh, is clear in the markets that have happened. If you look at the dramatic decline of solar prices, 80 percent drop in the last five years, it was kicked off by good policy and enabled by further good policy. And that creates a zero carbon energy alternative that's entirely affordable. On
1: affordability, uh, Lyndon Rive. Uh, last year, another cabinet secretary of President Obama, uh, uh, Julian Castro, was here, concerned about making green energy accessible and affordable to lower-income Americans. It's perceived to be an elitist, upper-middle-class, le- you know, coastal thing. So, how are, what are you? How is clean energy getting to uh, you know less uh, Americans with low, less income?
5: Yeah. So just to just be clear, let's nail that one in the head. That's propaganda from the utilities. That's not the case. Okay. If you look at the, all the growth, all the growth in the industry today, majority of it is in low to moderate income neighborhoods. So, so that's, that's the majority. If we, looked at it, we just looked at our installations in California, um, uh, 38% of our installations are in zip codes with sensor tracked with uh, 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 disadvantaged communities. So it's with the innovation of the technology and financing, you can provide a product where the where homeowner can go solar. Um, no investment, save money from day one. That product um, had a high credit uh, criteria in the beginning, and now that criteria has come down and down and down, and now it's at 650 FICO instead of 720 when it started off. It's enabled most of the growth in the industry, 70% of the, the U.S. market is on that type of program, and it's in, uh, made solar available to to most homeowners.
1: So, Lyndon Rive, what's needed to, what solar is what? percent maybe of U.S. electricity now? What's needed to get it to five, ten percent? What's the path? Yeah,
5: so, so this, is in, this is where government can play a really important role. Um, having a policy that enables making use clean energy easier, let's not make it harder. Um, what, what we often find when we start getting traction is that when you get traction, uh, the the, uh, the incumbents leverage their policy relationships to slow down the adoption. Like, oh wait, this is actually starting to work. We're actually starting to solve the problem. Let's make it harder. Um, <laughs> so, so, like, wow, and, and they, actually, they actually give presentations of like potential growth trajectories. Oh, well, look how good it's going to grow. We've got to make sure that that growth trajectory slows down. Like, well, thank goodness, we, we some states have really good uh, 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 leaders in, in in this role, and if It's up to them to make this work, and it's binary. If they do it right, growth occurs, we solve the problem. If they do it wrong, um, it decimates the market, and there is no renewable energy.
1: How would you characterize California regulators' relationship with the incumbent, the large utilities?
5: I think California is one of the best states. Uh, I think our governor is doing a great job. I think our PC uh, is, is dealing with the challenge and doing a phenomenal job. So I think California is one of the the best states.
1: uh, Hal Harvey, California is often seen as a clean energy leader. It was seen as a clean energy leader in Paris very much, both at the city and state level. And yet California's success is not, its trajectory is not secured for the future. Some of the laws that Governor Schwarzenegger assigned will, will expire. A new governor in California in 2018 could go in a very different direction. Is that true?
4: California enjoys what I call a virtuous cycle. So when you create good policy, you create good industries behind it, and you create workers for those industries and customers, and they become a new political force. So when Governor Brown was the youngest governor in California's history, he instituted a very progressive building code that self-tightens every three years. And at first the builders were against this, and then they realized uh, it levels the playing field and it keeps out the schlock. And so new products came along, better windows, better air conditioners, better roofing materials, better insulation, and buildings got more and more efficient. Every three years the code tightened up. This survived through Duke Magin, Wilson, Schwarzenegger, Davis. I didn't get the order quite right, but Republican and Democratic governors alike. And that's where we're headed in California, and that's where we're headed nationally. Earlier I said something about green and brown states. They're all going to be green states the reason they're all going to be green states is because nobody wants to overpay for energy perennially. Nobody wants to be permanently dependent on fossil fuels. Nobody wants to subject their kids to asthma and particulate pollution. <laughs> so there are leader states that take risks, but there are technologies which enable all states to come on board.
1: And on the California, though, the 2018, some things need to be done. I mean, there's a, sometimes an assumption that California is kind of coasting in this green lane that could change.
4: There's certainly, there's always political risk here. One of my favorite policy design principles is continuous improvement. So I'll give the the good example I just mentioned was the California building codes get tighter every three years. One political step, continuous improvement. The contrary example, which is a killer, after the first oil embargo, President Gerald Ford doubled fuel efficiency through CAFE standards from 13 miles per gallon to 26 And then they plateaued, essentially unmoving, until Obama doubled them again to 54. We wasted 25 years of innovation. We wasted 25 years of dramatic oil expenditures, almost all of which were sent to countries that hate us. $1 trillion in that time period. And we let the other companies continue to innovate because they had tougher standards. And so we innovated with cup holders, and they innovated with transmissions, and engines, and tires, and chassis. So continuous improvement is is a magic bullet, and that's one of the things that has to be built into legislation, including in California. And Greg, can I Danny, just can I... jump
0: in? That By 2018, I think this virtuous cycle that has just been described is going to be even more entrenched in California with more jobs. You know, Back to Lyndon's point also about the monopoly utilities, we now already employ more people in the solar industry than the five big utilities in the state, the IAUs and SMUD and Los Angeles Department of Water and Power plus we're going to employ many more in the years to come and create these businesses that, that are then exportable to the world. You know, that's the next big wave. There's something in the order of 9 to $12 trillion in the next 25 years going to be spent on energy, not here but in other countries. California wants a piece of that action. I can't imagine our politicians and leaders in three years' time stepping backwards from their leadership position.
1: Uh, we're talking about the economy and innovation at Climate One. We're going to go to our lightning round question and ask you uh, brief yes or no Thanks. questions. We'll see if you did better than our previous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, Danny Kennedy, the U.S. government should help coal workers losing their jobs due to cheap natural gas and solar power. Yes or no?
0: Absolutely, they should.
1: Lyndon Rive, uh, Tesla, who is a corporate cousin of SolarCity, has a market capitalization of $25 billion. Last year, it sold less than 50,000 50, cars. That's a valuation of $500,000 for cars that it sells for $100,000. That is a sign of a bubble.
5: Uh, asking, like I may be biased in my comment, but I think we're going to have 100% all electric in the future. So. Um, if you look at how many cars there actually are and what, uh, what the trans- uh, transformation is going to look like, I think it's undervalued.
1: <laughs> Hal Harvey, a homeowner who has the money for rooftop solar is better off buying it than leasing it from an installer. Yes. Uh, Lyndon Rive, <laughs> clean tech companies do a good job hiring and promoting minorities and women.
5: Actually, we do, yeah, really well.
1: Danny Kennedy, a young child today will fly on a battery-powered airplane in their lifetime.
5: <laughs> yes, they will.
1: <laughs> Last one. Hal Harvey, China will be the clean tech leader of the
4: 21st century. If we don't wake up. Actually, we're on our way, but it's going to be a race.
1: All right, that ends our lightning round. How did they do? I think they did pretty well. Um <laughs> Hal Harvey, you've said that America has become somewhat of a petrostate, dependent on resource extraction. What do you mean by that?
4: We had uh, an amazing boom, first of natural gas from fracking and then from oil from fracking. And the U.S. became a, one of the dominant world oil producers after years of decline. Uh, and there are some parts of Texas and most of North Dakota and other other states, Pennsylvania, for example, where there were fantastic revenues and a lot of jobs Created, The problem becomes, there's an environmental problem to this, of course, but the economic problem becomes if you become so dependent on those natural resources that you fall into the trap where we find Russia, Venezuela, Iran, where if you can't sell that oil at a good price, your economy tanks. So it's perfectly fine to responsibly use our natural resources. It's a terrible idea to get addicted to natural resource extraction. It's called the resource curse, and we should avoid it.
1: All right. Uh, let's talk about the, the Paris deal. We heard uh, earlier that it's, not, it's lacking in ambition. Hal Harvey, what do you think of the Paris deal? Is it, sort of, is it just a gesture or is it, is it a meaningful step forward?
4: It's, it's, it's a real deal. What's important about Paris, the most important thing about Paris is that everybody came to the table with a plan to decarbonize their economy. And what will matter is whether that gets done. What Paris did was sanctify the political movement and create momentum. Where we have to turn our attention now, and this is absolutely crucial, is especially in the big nations, helping ensure that they end up with the right building codes, the right utility policy, the right the end to subsidy of fossil fuels. So it's, it's the nuts and bolts, sector by sector, policy actions that go away from Paris in the top 20 countries that determine our climate future. It's
5: that simple.
1: Lindon, the Paris deal is going to affect uh, solar cities' growth. going to affect their solar industry.
5: Absolutely. I mean, when you look at developing countries, uh, solar is 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 clearly something that 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 can help them. It it helps with grid stability when you start adding uh, storage to it as well. Um, uh, The big challenge now in developing countries is is financeability. So it's not a technology issue. The technology is available, but it's financeability. So out of the uh, our Paris is commitments from uh, the developed countries to help with the financing. And so it'll take a while for that to go through the system and how we actually get access to the financing. But when, when that access to the financing becomes available, you'll see a lot more deployment of renewable energy in, in the developing countries.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with Lyndon Rive from Solar City, Danny Kennedy from CalCEF, and Hal Harvey from uh, Energy Innovation. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
2: A theme that we've heard today is the economic um, potential of the clean energy transition. I was at a panel at the Clean Tech Forum just a couple hours ago where they were talking about robots and automation in the work, uh, in the industrial force. Can you speak to how that fits into this picture um, long term in the future?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, And we're just going through this right now. We're just building a a factory in. New York, it's going to be the largest uh, solar manufacturing factory in, in the Western Hemisphere, and we're looking at, at automation and the robots moving things around. There's a lot of innovation that can occur there. Those robots are super expensive. It makes no sense when you do bottoms-up cost analysis of what those robots do cost, um, and uh, and they're clunky. They're, they actually don't provide such great automation. So it's, um, it's, it's a very challenging part of the manufacturing and I I think there could be a tremendous innovation there.
1: That's tough news for people hoping that that plant in Buffalo will create lots of jobs. Is there a tension there between robots and job creation?
5: So so, the number one job creator in the solar industry is actually delivering solar on somebody's uh, house. So so, um, yes, even if you automate the full factory, you're still going to create a lot of jobs, um, but the... Manufacturing has this appeal that it, it's, it's the elite uh, jobs, but installers make more money. They, 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 you know, good installers can make a good income, and it is uh, highly distributed. It's not concentrated, so you, so everybody gets the benefit of the job creation versus just one specific location, and uh, the ratio is dramatically different. Like uh, our factory in uh, Buffalo is, is going to make about a gigawatt. The forecast is about 1,500 people in that factory. Today, we, are, we, we install about a gigawatt as a company, and we have 15,000 employees. So it, it's a big delta.
1: And those installation jobs can't be shipped, shipped offshore to China. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
5: Hi there. Oliver Harris here from Tower Power. Uh, just
4: focusing on some of the poorest parts in the world, of the world where people don't have access to energy at all, What's your view on the role of distributed renewable energy microgrids to provide the power that they need?
5: Yeah. This...
0: <laughs> Favourite subject, David, because... Danny uh, Kennedy. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realise that there are more people on Earth today that don't have electricity than when Edison started the whole electrification thing. And so there's going to be an enormous growth of that over the next several decades. So of that sort of multi-trillion dollar market, sounds like funny money, much of it is going to be bottom of the pyramid, if you will, bringing light and other electricity services to people of Asia, the half of India that doesn't have electricity to date, and all of Africa, including the burgeoning population there. So it's an enormous space. It's an enormous opportunity to do good and uplift lives. uh, And it's already booming. I mean, I think the off-grid electric scene is becoming a, a hot market, if you will, a bit like the solar industry here in America about eight, seven years ago. Bunch of announcements at this forum that people are at this week in San Francisco of funding and equity rounds and all that sort of good news, um, and hopefully that will just grow globally as we deliver this thing we all take for granted called electricity, but which can
5: really improve people's lives across the globe. Yeah, we're super passionate for that, and we've invested in a company actually called Off Grid Electric in um, in Tanzania, and the model is essentially just displacing kerosene. and It's a small solar panel. Um, uh, four or six LED lights, little battery. Uh, it provides a far better uh, form of light, way healthier, um, uh, and uh, way safer um, uh, at a lower price than just burning kerosene. So, so, so you think of the, the sales model. You, you're coming home one day, and you've got your neighbor with this nice light hanging out and, versus you and the, with your little kerosene um, lamp. And you ask your neighbor... How'd you get that? And your neighbor tells you it's cheaper than the kerosene. So it's going to be massive, massive growth in that sector.
1: Lyndon the CEO of City. Let's go to our next question.
5: Hi, thanks for coming and speaking with us this evening. So we've talked a lot about Paris and um, you know, how to make sure there's action after the talks. And uh, Mr. Harvey, I'd love for you to talk to us about how you think countries are going to keep each other um, you know, keep each other honest to their own commitments, and specifically the role that the United States will play in that.
4: One of the uh, elements of tension in the Paris talks was this question of transparency, monitoring, <clears throat> and verifying these changes. And the U.S. fielded a, a, a pretty brilliant team of negotiators and um, made great progress on this. And I think China's interest in transparency has been a, has been an enormous step in the right way. So I think the actual monitoring of progress is going to be pluralistic. There's a lot of citizen observations we can see. There's more and more web reporting. More and more sensing is unfolding across the world that lets us see what's being used and what's being burned. You can, you can do a lot of this with what they call national technical means without necessarily believing what's self-reported. So <clears throat> I think we're going to have report cards on the web for every major country to tell you how things are going. What's more important, or at least as important, is that the citizens of those countries demand increased energy efficiency and increased renewable energy, cleaner air, and reduced climate risk. Because it's the domestic political pressure, not the international political pressure, that's going to make the big difference. And then finally, the main narrative of Paris from my perspective was Copenhagen was all about burden sharing. And Paris was all about opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's a 180 switch. So you don't need to have such draconian measures when it turns out to be in your economic interest to do the right thing. It's not, it's not a done deal. It's not a coasting slope downhill all the way. I don't want to be sanguine about this. But the wind is definitely at our back. Let's go
1: to our last question. Welcome.
2: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Lisa Altieri. Um, my question is, uh, how long do you see it taking... For battery
1: technology to advance to the point where net metering is no longer key for homeowners, where homeowners can just install their own battery, go off grid, and and not need the utility to do
5: this. Um, so, in terms of uh, answering the question of how long it will it take for batteries to actually uh, uh, not uh, to, to be as a technology, so you don't have to net meter, but let me just address the issue, the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is actually not net metering. There is no cost shift associated with not, with net, net metering. There's a revenue loss. So if you go with battery, you still lose the revenue. So and and so if you if you uh, find a technology where it's solar with storage and you actually have grid defection, that's because of bad policy. That's the only reason. It's it's a bad design. It's not the, it's not the right design. It's bad policy. You want to use the grid. You just want to enable it. That, that you get fair compensation for provide services to the grid. And I think what will happen is you still get, and this is my forecast, you still get full retail and net metering over time, but then the solar industry has to provide more services. So today we just provide energy. We don't provide additional services beyond energy. Fast forward one more year, we have to provide reactive power, with smart inversions. Fast forward, call it another three or four years, then we have to provide demand, like capacity. Um, actual power, not energy. And, and so for that, in exchange, we get net metering. And that's, and that's where I think it, it will evolve to over time. The solar industry has to provide more services, evolve, and actually address some of the grid concerns. Um, and, and nothing else will end up.
1: One person I heard say that the future of electric utilities will be something like eBay and UPS. There'll be markets and delivering and, and kind of in that kind of delivery value-added service. We're, we're out of time. Uh, we have to thank our Danny Kennedy from CalCEF, Lyndon Rye from SolarCity, and Hal Harvey from Energy Innovation. Thank them for joining. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at ClimateOne. Thanks to our audience here and online. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy and environment.